Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 15, 60 Years of Recovery as a Family Member. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction and the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Ariaga and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we'll hear Casey's interview with Dr. Al Mooney, who has an amazing story of both his personal recovery and his professional contributions that have helped so many people around the world who struggle with addiction in themselves or in a loved one. His story spans 60 years from the age of 10 until today. He talks about how his father found recovery, what it was like to grow up in a family centered on recovery, and how he incorporated this background as he left home to find his own way in the world, and how his career in addiction medicine has taken him to many different places as one of the pioneers in the field of addiction medicine. We'll hear this interview after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's hear that interview. Hi, welcome to the program. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know what are you doing on a podcast called Addiction in the Family? Hello, it's good to be here. My name is Al Mooney, and I've had a lifelong journey with addiction and mostly recovery. I'm a physician and have done addiction medicine, but probably the most important part of my journey is having grown up in an alcoholic addict family and I'm old now, but I got into recovery with my family a long, long time ago, just after my dad got sober in 1959. So it's good to be here, and I look forward to sharing more of my journey and hopefully connecting with some people who are searching for solutions or knowledge in their life related to recovery from family addiction. Well, I really appreciate that, and I'm glad that you're here. 
Would you mind talking a little bit about what your family was like before recovery and then how they found recovery? Sure, Casey. And I, I enjoy what you're doing in our interview. It's a little different than a lot of the work that I do because I've been taught to segment my life. Either I'm dealing with something on a personal side or I'm wearing my professional hat. And I'm intrigued and in some ways motivated by the way you're interview seems to be taking on even as we begin where it's about my journey which there's a lot of personal side but there's also a professional side and i hope we can get into both of these areas one of the reasons it's important to me is because in our society and in most societies around the world there's so much shame guilt and stigma related to addiction that we have trouble connecting with the healing and i am fortunate to have not had that kind of start to the recovery in my family. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But that journey for me has continued to be a, a pursuit of what I call my intellectual curiosity. And we think of most of the healing being emotional growth and things that are not real brainy. Matter of fact, the brainy stuff gets in the way of recovery a lot of times. However, I've been around a long time and that brainy stuff, even though I know it doesn't heal me, it adds validity to my plight in addiction and it also gives me some power to understand and move forward with the healing that needs to happen. I agree so much with what you're saying there about that pursuit of knowledge and it's something I really encourage in my clients who struggle with addiction but also especially for the family members. Because what I've found is that when people understand what's going on around addiction and recovery, what's happening in brains and their bodies, and I include family members in this because I think family members go through a lot of addictive or compulsive or obsessive behavior around their loved one, trying to get their loved one better. And even if that isn't happening, the family members often are going through physiological and neurological stress just watching their loved ones struggle. And I think all too often, people are not stopping to say, does the family member need to recover from that? And so if people get the education and they understand what's actually happening scientifically, it can help remove stigma both for the person with the addiction and for the family members to be able to let some of that go and get some relief. That's certainly a, a concept that connects me. And I'm lucky because at such a young age, I was exposed to, and not just exposed, but immersed in recovery. My dad, well, I call him a World War II war hero, and he was, he was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne but he flew in gliders, but his glider crashed. He had a back injury, but uh, out of that back injury from that uh, World War II glider crash, he got involved uh, with narcotics. There was alcohol involved, narcotics. He came back to practice medicine and he ended up getting sucked into the addiction and ended up in prison from an addiction problem. And that's where he found recovery. And the 82nd, for those people that are familiar, has a shoulder patch, AA. All stands for All-American. So when I started hearing the, the letters AA mentioned, I, I wondered, what in the hell did a bunch of paratroopers do to change my family life so much? It took me a while as a kid to figure out exactly how all the alphabet kind of worked together to help our family. And, when he, and I didn't know what was going on, but it was interesting how 
the recovery that I was so unaware of really lifted a burden of confusion and guilt off my shoulders. When dad and mom both would go away, they both had to be in institutions before they got sober. But my dad was a doctor, a prominent surgeon in the area. And I'd say, where's daddy gone? And nobody, I guess, wanted to lie. So they said, he's off learning to be a better doctor. And sure enough, when he got out of the mental institutions, when he got out of prison, he was a lot better doctor. But nobody was honest about what was going on until he came back home with, it was early recovery, but he was in good recovery. And when I asked the question directly to him, where have you been? He was honest. He said, I've been in prison. It was strange because you'd think when your dad tells you he's been in prison that you would that would have been even more burden. But the burden was immediately lifted off my shoulders because I knew he was a smart guy and could have made up any kind of story he wanted to. But he didn't. So I knew for the first time in my life that was the truth. And, you know, we say around recovery, the truth will set you free. The one thing that I heard, well, I, I saw in him, it planted a seed of curiosity with me that I have continued to have up until this day. But it was the same body that came back that I knew as my dad, but there was a different person in it. Uh, and it was as though at 11 years old, when he got out of prison, that I met my dad for the first time. And it was like a twilight zone minute. How did they put a new person in that old body that I knew so well? And uh, in the program of recovery, AA calls that the psychic change. And people in recovery see it all the time and almost take it for granted. Now, just in the last few years, science has begun to understand what we call neuroplasticity and the concept of positive neuroplasticity. Sometimes in recovery, we have to be patient for the scholars to really explain what we know to be our reality. And that's been a big part of my journey in the family is going from that 10-year-old boy very confused because nothing made sense to now an old man as I've continued to participate in this journey where light bulbs are going off every day and I'm surprised it's still so engaging after all these years, but it seems to be. And to me, a lot of that is the journey of a family recovery that is not just limited to me. I, I found that so many other people in recovery are just excited about the mystery behind what comes up around every corner. Thank you so much for sharing that. And something I want to highlight for our listeners is where you talk about being honest with the kids, because this is a concern that I hear from a lot of family members is, how do we shield the kids? Should we be honest? And in your story, your dad is just straightforward, and he talks about exactly what happened, but frames it in ways that a child can understand. And I like to think that that is always possible that we can be honest, that that is healthier for the family, it's healthier for the children, it promotes recovery, and it doesn't involve having to keep secrets anymore because that's such a hallmark in addicted families. One of the cool things is that I'll have these life experiences because I didn't really have a choice. Our family was immersed in recovery. In order to live, my folks got involved and stayed involved in recovery, and we did it as a family. You know, the vacations we took, camping trips, uh, we went to conventions, all of them related to the recovery fellowships. Then when I got into medical school, so many things in my medical training were either dramatically right or dramatically wrong. 
and the light bulbs continued to go off. And curiosity to learn more really captured me. And I've stuck with this a long, long time and don't intend to quit. And one of the things you, you talk about that childhood experience of getting the truth. I'm not saying you need to tell your whole story point by point, do a fifth step with your kids, but the honesty, age, and developmental appropriate is probably a good thing. It really worked well for me. I was told what went on, you know, and instead of feeling bad that my dad was in prison, somehow it released me from a pain and suffering that I didn't even know I had. So often when these things are done in recovery, even if we don't have the firm science, it turns out to be the right thing. And particularly with Alcoholics Anonymous recently, there's good research now that's just begun to come out this past year that talks about how effective Alcoholics Anonymous is. And it's amazing that it's taken so long to come out, but it's also amazing that millions and millions of people have benefited before the final authority of research determined that it's a solid evidence-based practice. I'm so glad that that happened because this merger of intellect and science with recovery has been an important part of my journey. And not everybody's into kind of the nerdy stuff like I am, but uh, if I can use my talents and interest to strengthen my recovery, I'm really not sure why I wouldn't want to do that. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of educating families. I mean, it's part of the reason that we do this podcast. So I wonder, we talk about developmentally appropriate ways to discuss things with younger family members, but I find that older family members can also get shielded. Like, don't tell grandma that one of her grandkids is struggling. And I think she probably knows something. She's been around. But the family culture of secrecy, no matter how well-intentioned, can end up protecting the addiction instead. Because we are as sick as our secrets. So I advocate for what I call the Mr. Rogers approach. Because if you look back at his show, he found a way to talk about grief, about insecurity, about death, about wanting to die. And he could talk about all these heavy, heavy subjects, as well as joy and laughter and wonder. And he would talk about them to a really young audience. So I wonder, how would you recommend talking to younger family members or older family members about issues of addiction in the family? I don't want to get too far off the subject that you want to talk about, but you mentioned older family members, and it's something that I'm rarely asked to talk about. We, people don't usually even think about that. And even in good recovery fellowships, sometimes people get to the end of life and it's like walking off a cliff. We kind of forget about them. We spend so much time thinking about the, the happy, joyous, and free life we live in. We often minimize, I guess is a, is a better word than forget, the end of life phase. And there's very little research done on this. If we get into some of the life's work that I've done with the recovery book, where I talk about red, yellow, green zones of recovery, I talk about the end of life that goes through a reversal of the mature growing phase that recovery has. Uh, you know, I think there's a Confucius quote that says, uh, once an adult, twice a child. And it's that end of life is so important and not either researched or attended to like I would think it should be. I've been thinking this way for years. Now, as I get older, 
I've got a lot more of this concept on my mind than I ever have. Well, I think as we get older, you know, we have ideas that are harder to shake because we've got life experience that has confirmed a lot of what we believe. And if that life experience has been a script of suffering from addiction, those older years can be some of the hardest to endure because the tools of recovery have never penetrated some of our firmly held beliefs that need to change for us to be better. It's never too old to go into a recovery program as a family member. With the pandemic, it's even more interesting because now for those people that have disabilities and have trouble getting out for any reason, we can do all of that now right at home through technology with a virtual recovery world. And I've got meetings that I go to all over the world, England, Africa. I was in a meeting yesterday where had people from like three continents and five or six different time zones all in one meeting. And these are real heroes of mine in recovery that I never would have dreamed of having in the same room. So there are things that we can be grateful for, even in hard times like we're going through now. Absolutely. I really hear the idea that both younger and older family members who can't just jump in a car and run off to a meeting can now take advantage of all those online meetings and phone meetings because there's a lot of different resources out there. Now, you referenced earlier that within your own family, you all went to conventions together, traveled together to other recovery events, and I wonder, did they just have you go to the same recovery fellowships they went to, or did they encourage you to find your own recovery? And if so, about what age did that happen? From the time my folks got sober and everybody came home from whatever institution they happened to be in, we were living together around recovery. It was very different back in those early days. I'm talking about, well, my dad got sober in 1959. He came home in November of 1959. So most of my family recovery journey began in 1960. And during that first couple of years, there was a community fellowship that I was immersed in. For example, today when people go to meetings, people go to the meeting and then when the meeting's over, they go home. And often the family's not even in the equation. But back in those days, there were two meetings a week in the little town we lived in. And mom and dad would you know, eat supper, head out to those meetings. Sometimes, like there was a Saturday meeting where there was what they call a, a birthday party. When somebody picked up their token or chip, they would often have a meal. So we would actually go eat dinner at the meeting and then hang around for the meeting. And often the talks were entertaining and a lot of times people in the community that I knew and so there was some familiarity with the lives and the problems and the kids that these other people had. We you know, had a lot of kids that would hang out. But on those other nights, they would either go in a car or a carpool. You know, they'd take seven or eight, nine people in the Volkswagen bus and they'd head off an hour or two down the road to a meeting. But on the way, they would stop by someone's house and often it was our house and just be hanging around for 45 minutes an hour waiting on everybody to get off work, getting ready to go to the meeting. And then after the meeting, whether it was local or on the road, there would usually be a house that people would go to and just kind of debrief the meeting. They would just talk and, and now that was done openly in our home. And that's where a lot of my interest began. We had a living room right next to a, a long string of stairs up to the second floor where my brothers and I had our bedroom. And I remember lying at the top of those stairs, listening to the discussion and being fascinated by it. And often they would play tapes because even in those days, there were AA speakers at uh, conventions and 
and these speakers would be the people that would hit the road sometimes and go from convention to convention because they were so eloquent in the way they described their recovery. And I would listen to the tapes, and the experiences were just entertaining and enlightening. And it was such a positive experience for me as a child because it wasn't like I come out of such a traumatized childhood like I know a lot of people do. And it wasn't like when we got into recovery that I was shielded from it. I was just brought into the recovery. And it, so it became really a part of my family life. And I look for examples even now. And there are some good ones where families can do these things together in fellowship instead of the person who identifies with recovery being torn away from their family to go to their meeting because at least in those days, it was comforting to me and healthy for me to be part of a family recovery that I may not have chosen to go to alone, but participating in the family made it really meaningful and much easier. That's a great testimony. And just so you know, at meetings I've attended in various recovery fellowships, I've seen a lot of people bring their kids, so that still happens to this day. I wonder, was there a point where it started to feel like your recovery? You know, there's a fellowship for teenagers. I had to wait till I got 13. <laughs> but when I started going to a meeting for my own recovery, it was a time as a young teenager that I was trying to act like an adult anyways. All the adults I knew were healthy and sober and having a good time across the street at their meeting. And we had the kids. We, you know, we were all teenagers and we started our own meeting. And it was, it was a natural continuity from just being a child, you know, kind of tagging along to a teenager who now had ownership in our own meeting. And it became an important part of my life. It was not as mature as I think about meetings today. You know, there's a lot of study of the literature the AA Big Book is, is really dug into and every word and phrase is torn apart for the benefit of building a good recovery. But as a kid, there were just a few pieces of literature, but there were a lot of personal experience and fellowship. Um, the way I remember the early 60s until I went off to college in 1966, the program was primarily built around group interaction and fellowship in all these families. Yes, we talked about meetings and literature and steps, but fellowship was a huge part. And I think that goes back to when recovery started in 1935. There were hopeless people who were highly educated for the most part, at one point in their life, very responsible people. And individually, there was no hope. They had done everything they could and failed. But somehow the bond of fellowship created a as an English teacher would say, a first-person singular world of I to a first-person plural world of we. And that, that minor adjustment in perspective of life created the fellowship that the hopelessness of addiction was able to rise out of. People that read the steps carefully, it never mentions I or me. It's all about we and our, first-person plural. And that's kind of the magic. And I've lived that magic in my teenage years. And you talk about people who are highly educated and you yourself followed a long family tradition of going to medical school. 
Can you talk about your journey from being a child and adolescent in a family of recovery into becoming somebody moving into the educated and professional world as someone in recovery? I feel like those stars lined up for me going from a personal recovery that I was immersed in with family. It wasn't just me personally, it was a whole family recovery, and which was very, very important because I see people who get involved in the intellectual early before there's a foundation of personal recovery, and it doesn't often end well. But it was a little different for me because we were immersed in the recovery. And then after, let's see, about eight years of recovery when I headed out to college, but then I was back on weekends and there was still a lot of family recovery going on there. But it was a shift and I got to a lot less of the recovery activities when I was in college and at medical school, my life stopped and I, it was all like in the library or you know, in the labs and those kind of things. So there was an interruption during those years. During the time I was in college, uh, attitude of recovery, and I found that some interesting things had happened. This was in the 60s and, you know, kind of the hippie days and LSD and marijuana were coming on the scene. And there was something about my life experience, much as I had classmates and good friends. You know, I, I, I hung out in the fraternity with people who did a lot of drinking and drugs. But somehow that experience had imprinted me because of the honest interaction we had in our family that I became like the designated driver before there was a designated driver invented. And I love the, the social structure of the people that drank, but there was something about me that didn't jump into the alcohol and drug use. I can probably count on one hand the, the times that I drank. And part of that was, you know, I'm in a marriage. I met my wife in college. We've been married, gosh, about 48 years. And we had a kind of a bond in our relationship where that wasn't important to her. So uh, I had a kind of a buddy in not drinking and doing drugs. And I had to reflect on that later to realize how important that was. But I did see things that I was prepared to question. You know, there's a social kind of attitude that isn't drinking great. And, you know, people often put the alcohol and drugs up on some kind of pedestal. And I always thought it was strange, you know, I had people come up in the fraternity house throwing up in the toilet the next morning after party. They'd ask me what kind of time we had. They'd say, I bet we had a good time last night, didn't we, Al? And I'm looking at him throwing up in the toilet, and I'm saying, what's wrong with this picture? And it was as though there was a kind of a mentality that revolved around the alcohol and drugs that made no sense. And without the family recovery, and the exposure I had to the good things that happened in our family. I don't know that that scene in a fraternity house would have had the impact it had on me, but it strengthened you know, my desire to look for alternatives to alcohol and drugs in my life. And, and I took up flying. I'm a pilot, flight instructor, aviation medical examiner. I mean, flying has been a big part of my life. And, you know, when you go out and fly, you don't have a hangover the next morning and you enjoy life much better than a chemical can do. So it's not like I gave up anything to be abstinent. It's like abstinence gave me a platform to achieve many, many more things in life that a lot of people don't even know are there for the taking. So that was a lot of my experience in high school. Now, in medical school, it was a little different because there's almost no medical education in addiction to doctors. And my training was no different. 
And I had a couple of doctors that pointed out addiction to me. I had one a senior resident that said it's really important to identify all your alcoholics because there's nothing you can do for them. You need to turn your attention to all your other patients. And I'm thinking, is he nuts? Because every alcoholic I'd ever seen seemed to get sober and live happily ever after. I think in those days we saw more recovery success than we do today. And that's more of a professional question to get into. But I think it's true. Um, there's another concept that hit me back in those days because this was my dad returning from prison. You know, he was in prison because he was diagnosed at some point in there as a sociopath, which means you're born to be a criminal. But then when he got out of prison and got sober, he, as a physician and my mom was a nurse, they started taking people in our home. Uh, they didn't understand that recovery was seeing people at meetings and being a sponsor and all that. And the whole addiction field was not very well defined. This was the embryonic stages of addiction recovery professional treatment. And eventually, he, my, my parents almost went bankrupt trying to help other alcoholics get sober, thinking that they needed to do that to protect their own sobriety. And eventually, they got it all sorted out and started a hospital that uh, still runs today where I did a lot of my work and, and training and life and career experience. But that was not recovery. That was a professional treatment practice. But then the recovery was a big part of our life even then. But the thing that impressed me was, you know, my dad had almost gone bankrupt, giving away what he earned in his career after he had gotten sober. And before he got sober, he was like taking everything out of the world. And I asked my psychiatry professor in medical school, how does a sociopath change to become a philanthropist? And um, Ed and mine trying to figure this intellectual stuff out. Yeah, I was just blown off. My psychiatry professor said it never happens. You're hardwired to be a sociopath, and anyone with that diagnosis can never become a normal human being. And I never had the courage to tell my professor that I was talking about my dad, but I did become a kind of some of, somewhat of a skeptic, you know, of the medical field at that time, knowing that what I had seen with my own eyes was true. And there must be things that the medical field hasn't understood or got explained yet. And sure enough, after a lifetime of my profession, I realized that more is revealed all the time about recovery. And now we know about neuroplasticity and we know the brain can be molded into something it never was. So what we read in the AA material is true. This concept of psychic change, now we have some scientific structure to understand it by. And that was really cool to watch that come decades after I learned about it as a teenager with a dad who changed like that. Well, yeah, and even that, what you would call a sociopath still has some, I'd say, popular currency. But as a clinical social worker, I'll say that within the field, we wouldn't use that term anymore. We might say they have an antisocial personality disorder, which is not just a change in terms, but it's the recognition that this is a condition that they have rather than who they are as a person. And more importantly, that they can recover from that as well. I think a number of psychiatric conditions, including addiction, that for a long time, not just the word on the street, but also the word among professionals, what was being taught in medical school, what was being taught in social work school, counseling school, and psychology programs, is that's incurable. And thus the advice that was given was, you want to separate out the alcoholics so you don't treat them. 
And yet here you are with this personal experience of watching it happen in front of you in your own family, leaving you to say, no, wait, there is a treatment. So how did you start to bring those things back together, the science and the recovery? Well, when I realized that medicine was so far off track as a medical student, I, I, I knew I had to go other places to get get my information. and. I was hopeful, and actually, I'm, I've been rewarded because now the science of addiction is often not seen, because, uh, but it's there. I love getting my nose into some of the scientific and scholarly investigations, and even Alcoholics Anonymous invited those scholarly investigations in its original publication, and for a long time, I think it was ignored or there was never a path forward decided on. but. With this recent research that is out of the Cochrane Library, if people are interested, they can Google Alcoholism, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cochrane Library, and this wonderful research will come up that documents how effective, in a scientific way, Alcoholics Anonymous has proved to be. Now, there's a caveat to that, because we don't just throw treatment options at people, but if we pick the modality that targets the right situation that an alcoholic and their family is in, we get a lot better success. And, you know, this gets very complicated and we won't have time to get into very much. But there is a time when people are under the influence of alcohol and drugs where I don't care what we put in their head verbally, it's not going to sink in because it's a physical problem that requires withdrawal treatment. In the words of the big book of AA, uh, Bill Wilson called these people jittery and befogged. And basically, just very quickly said, you know, until the doctors get them well and get their head clear, there's not much that we can do. So he set the stage for the medical profession, having a platform to shovel people into AA after getting them detoxed. And, and that, when worked right, it worked really well. There also is a concept, it's in a lot of the AA literature originally. Uh, chapter 7 talks about working with others, and it expresses how important it is to have a bond with another person before you can really share meaningful information about recovery. And there are some scientists now that in the 80s discovered a progression of motivational readiness that goes from not even thinking about a problem to thinking about it to making a change. There are five levels that Procrasco and DiClemente discovered that actually pre-contemplation and contemplation are the first two early levels, it's hard to reach people in any way to help with sobriety then, but there are interventions that will help move them to a further and a higher level of readiness. And the 12-step approach deals with the highest levels of motivational readiness, those three we call preparation, action, and maintenance. And for those people familiar with the steps, the preparation for recovery is steps one, two, and three. You really don't have to do anything. You just stop drinking and work those three steps. And then the action steps four through nine are cleaning up your life. First your side of the street and then what you've done on the other side. And then at the end of step nine, there's a change in recovery that was experienced in those early people that wrote the AA material. And we still see it today as people progress in recovery where they're what we call recovered. We don't use the past tense very often, but the original people did. And then the readiness to change moves to unmaintenance, to keep what you got. That's 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps in recovery. 
And however that's packaged, whatever 12-step program or recovery fellowship, those stages of healing are important for it to be successful. And only early in that process where detox or some sort of engagement in the recovery process has to happen is where any of the medications have really shown to be effective. They can be very effective if they keep you from having a seizure and dying. And there are other expectations from some medication treatment. But once the people are in a recovery path, then a lot of the healing comes, you know, from the fellowship, mutual support, insight, and a number of other things that happen as that brain molds into something it never had been before and doesn't need to drink anymore. Great information. I will humbly submit that our own podcast did an entire episode dedicated to the stages of change. That's episode seven for those that want to go check it out. I love how you tie the stages into the 12 steps. I also want to point out that for those who are looking for alternatives to 12-step recovery, that Smart Recovery, which is probably the next largest in terms of a non-12-step group, is based specifically on those same stages of change. They talk about the stages in their literature and help people identify where they are and how to move themselves forward if they're not where they want to be. So great summary there, Dr. Money. I really appreciate that. And you mentioned Smart Recovery, and it's important because in America, we have a I'm going to try not to be too critical of our healthcare system, but it's really not up to a worldwide standard. And one of the problems is that we silo different modalities of treatment. There's much less holistic care, integration of care, and one method working with another method. There are a lot of reasons for that that we don't have time to get into. But there are some other societies, and the one I'm most familiar with is in England. They have a national health service, and they have the ability to integrate methods of recovery. And now there's not as much good recovery treatment in England as I would like to see. The recovery movement is strong in England and rapidly taking hold. But there are a few national health service districts that deal very effectively with addiction. And what I learned from those, instead of every method being in competition, you know, the smart recovery people are kind of out-competing the 12-step people and the methadone maintenance people have got to kind of elbow in a place in the system. The system doesn't require that over there, like we're all competing for some kind of dollars in our healthcare system over here. And so what that means in the systems, at least that I've worked with, is that it can be integrated because there may be a time where a person can initially get some medication that we would say in long-term recovery would be destructive. If that attracts a person, for example, methadone attracts somebody out from under a bridge and keeps them from getting HIV or dying, and then we've got a place where we can help educate them on the readiness for change model, educate them on the steps, and give them examples of people that are doing very well in recovery. That integrated concept works really well. And what I've seen in the system that I was consulting with in England was that smart recovery has a little bit more structure and definition that attracts them in more easily. And then often people move around from one recovery to another, and, and usually up the ladder to 12-step recovery, but it's flexible depending on what a person chooses. And I've seen that that kind of integrated care is less available in the U.S., even though some of the silos function very well in the U.S. It's the integration of different modalities that sometimes we lack over here. 
Well, I appreciate you speaking to that. I am fortunate to work at a treatment center, Windmill Wellness Ranch, where we actually offer both 12-step and SMART recovery. We have staff who've gotten and stayed sober through SMART, and we see a lot of our clients will really embrace both. Some of our clients will say, I'm just doing 12-step, and some will say, I'm just doing SMART. But the vast majority of people that explore them end up doing both and find that they actually work really well together. So I'm encouraged to hear that they're doing more of that in England. And that actually speaks to something where you've done international work on different continents and seen both the science and the recovery in different places. Can you reflect a little bit on what you've seen in those travels? I've, um, I started out about 35 years ago when the Iron Curtain fell. There was a terrible problem with alcoholism in Russia. And I was invited to participate training some physicians and even going to Moscow to consult with what they call their narcology hospitals. They actually had big hospitals that people were detoxed and sent back to the street. It wasn't effective like we would expect over here, but at least they were trying to learn more. And that was interesting. And from there, I got involved in a project in Romania and then Bosnia, Herzegovina, and then Egypt. But the most recent one was Ghana, West Africa. And there was an attempt to get recovery started, and, and there, there was not much recovery as we would think of it. And some of the traditional healing for addiction was very interesting and probably more detailed than we have time to get into. But the one thing I took from some of the traditional healing was there is a trust of traditional healers. You know, we're suspicious of everything in America. Hell, we can't even get people to wear a mask to save their life from a dangerous virus. So there's kind of a self-serving independence that we have in America that at times can be dangerous. And there are other things that are dangerous in foreign countries, but there actually is a trust of the healer in Africa that even though the methods were very different than I would ever use as a, as a traditionally trained physician in America, that relationship between the patient and the healer is something that I've been very curious about and watched and look for ways to take advantage of as we implement methods that come from ways to help addiction that really do work. Calling a disease, looking at the spiritual element to recovery, because family and faith are very strong in Africa, particularly in Ghana, where this project Recovery Africa has been. But the American culture nature of AA trying to go over there was not very well accepted. The principles of recovery, the steps, the spiritual growth, the family fellowship, all the healthy things seem to be part of the African culture. But what I call Wall Street and baseball, the national culture and history that, that recovery in America started with, it just doesn't translate to African countries or at least in the settings that we were working with, it seemed to impede the development of recovery. So I was asked to be involved because I was a physician and my uh, role was to help move people who have alcohol problems and were taken to the hospital into an extended care environment where they could absorb good recovery, including 12 steps in AA or anything that seemed to work. And what happened is that it, at first, it was very difficult, and before it got to be a little program with outside help, kind of like even AA started with outside help from church people, and the role of non-alcoholics in starting AA is often underemphasized. 
but it's an important element in why AA even exists, why any of these mutual support recoveries even exist. But that actually was a factor in Africa development because we're working with physicians and and me helping try to figure out how to get people from a hospital into a recovery environment was slow and not easy. But eventually, the principles that we know work in recovery seem to adapt to the culture. And actually, it is over now almost 15 years, it's really beginning to blossom in ways that are kind of unexpected to me. And now with the pandemic and with the technology, we're actually having a lot of cross-pollination of cultures and meetings and members all over the world. I've got a friend in Africa who's been sober two and a half years, and now he's gotten to be very popular talking at meetings in California. So you can do all this in Zoom, whereas it would have been impossible before the, the pandemic forcing us to get into a new dimension of recovery, which is also important probably to at least mention because a lot of people who are the most mature and secure in their recovery have been broadsided the most with the pandemic and the technology. And I think there's room for these people who have much less recovery experience to come to the plate with value from their technology experience to help some of the old timers uh, who, who need to be there for some of the younger people. So there's a whole new universe of recovery that's opened up because of the isolation created by the pandemic. Now, there are some locations, you know, where that opportunity has developed more than it has in other places. But at least in my work internationally and specifically with Africa, it's just taken off and really fueled a lot of the recovery that the people on the continent of Africa were hungry for. That is fantastic to hear. And thank you so much for doing that work. We'll hear more of our interview with Dr. Mooney after a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of that interview. So before we get to the end of the interview, I have a couple of questions I want to ask you, one personal and one professional. I'll ask the personal one first, if that's okay. You mentioned that in your journey that when you went off to college, you stopped attending the recovery fellowship meetings so much. What brought you back? A couple of things. I would participate through my family when I visited. I got involved in some recovery activities. I went to medical school and college in Atlanta, and I did some, but it wasn't a core of my life like my education was. When I did my postgraduate work in Louisville, Kentucky, is when I got reconnected with my personal recovery. Part of it was because I was working in the addiction field. I was doing a surgery residency, and I had a kind of a evolving understanding of my capabilities because I loved surgery, I loved the technical part, and I just found myself kind of, my whole personality changed to be like a surgeon, 
expecting results, high level of assertiveness, pushing the aggressiveness bar a little bit. And I found myself on that threshold, but I had an event, and this was one of those life-changing events. The professors were all in helping us figure out what to do with complicated patients. And one of the residents, the chief resident, the head trainee in my little group, asked our professor, he said, there's a group of people that we're really struggling with and of course, he was talking about the alcoholics. And he said, we bring these people in when they're gunshot, when they're stabbed, when their ulcers are bleeding. And we do all we can, staying up night after night, saving their lives. But then in a few weeks or a month or two, the same guys come back in with a same or different problem. And of course, these were the alcoholics. Normal people, when you fix them up from a life-threatening problem, they figure out what the problem is and they, they don't jump off that cliff anymore. And my professor said, I want you to know, and he stopped the whole group at that time and very assertively said, if you're gonna be a surgeon, you need to know one thing, that everybody on this earth has a purpose in life. And some people are put on this earth to teach surgeons how to operate. And it's like, whoa, because <laughs> I knew that was in a different universe than my attitude was because everybody I knew who had an alcohol problem had, had gone into recovery and gotten well and rippled through the family for generations. And so I realized then that I was in the wrong career path. There was no field of addiction at that time. So it was something I had to invent in my own way, which I did a pretty good job of doing that. And then I was involved later as a physician in helping develop the certification for physicians in addiction. And I'm very proud to have been on the board of the American Society of Addiction Medicine back then because these life and professional experiences kind of guided me. But that was what it was like. And so I ended up getting involved in my recovery path. And then when I got into my medical practice, I had another decision point and there was some personal issues with the family and it was, it was, but I had to ask myself, I said, I'm going to be in this community as a doctor and a difficult decision for me to join a mutual support group at that time with the pride and arrogance that comes with being a highly educated, trained physician for somehow, you know, the humility to go into a meeting with patients and with people that were suffering in the same way I'd suffered in the family was a difficult decision. But I bit the bullet and I did it by saying, you know, I don't have to join this recovery fellowship forever. If I'm gonna be in family recovery, I can do it one time and then never go back, do it a month, do it a year. And that was in, gosh, the late 70s. And I continue to pin very highly on my personal recovery and those meetings. But I never decided to go forever. I just decided to go one meeting or one week at the time, and it just never stopped. Now, there are some things, and I haven't talked a lot about my book, the recovery book, but in writing my book and in doing my professional development, my contribution has to do with the developmental aspects of healing from addiction in a person and the family. And I discovered that that initial foundation of building a recovery, where I have to be open-minded, I have to absorb a lot, my opinions probably don't matter that much because they're tainted with my own pain and suffering and misinformation. But as I continue in recovery, the intellect and the education and my curiosity to learn more have become very important in my sticking power. A lot of people come to a few meetings and feel better and I never see them again. That's not happened with me. I am just as passionate 
about what's around the next corner as I've ever been. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But I also have to realize that there are phases of development. I call those zones, red, yellow, green. And even when I have hard times, and most of the time I live in what I call the green zone, doing all I can to carry on the message, live as long as I can and help others. But when I've had some close family experience with addiction, or when I've a couple of times been physically and mentally exhausted, and even one time with some surgery needed medications, you know, I find myself, even as a family member in recovery, using my own principles of the recovery book to retreat back to a more basic level of recovery in the red zone or the yellow zone. I won't get into all the explanation, but that developmental aspect offering a retreat back to a more basic level has been an important part of my own recovery path. And probably the one major thing that I hope I've offered to others who have a lifelong interest in recovery. And you were leading beautifully into my second question. On a professional level, where can people find your work, learn more about you, and find that book you're talking about? The name of the book is The Recovery Book, and it's in every major bookstore. It's published by Workman Publishing in New York, so they have a wonderful distribution path. Also, Google Hal Mooney, The Recovery Book, and usually it's the first thing that pops up on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere you buy your books. And one thing we haven't mentioned that I think is important that we tried to do in the recovery book is because there's so much touchy-feely stuff that's important, but you might be looking for medical information. So the recovery book, the first chapter, is a little bit about the brain and how the brain can heal after it's been sick from addiction. So I encourage people to read chapter one, chapter two. And then if they like what they read, then move into the rest of the book, which is a blueprint for healing over a lifetime. Well, thank you so much for writing that, for all the work you've done to help individuals with addiction, families with addiction, and family members, and for putting that message out there to families. You talk about a lifetime of recovery, and that's something you seem to have modeled really well. So we're gonna to move towards closing, and I'll ask, is there anything else you'd wanna to say to family members out there? Yeah, I wanna encourage family members to keep hope and that it's not always staring us in the face. It's out there, but I wanted to thank you and tell you how important it is for a message of recovery to be out there. One thing that we who have experienced recovery hope to do as we move through this journey is to share the hope of recovery with others. And in the world we live in that is based on your money moving to somebody else's pockets, there's very little of the market economy that fits with this recovery. Nobody makes any, matter of fact, people probably don't have as many medical bills and extra bank fees, all the things that keep our economy churning go away when people get into recovery. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Then you got money to buy presents for your grandkids and all kinds of things. But there's very little economy in recovery. And that distresses me, but it also means that those of us who have been given that gift can participate in sharing it with others who might not have been as fortunate yet, but who deserve the hope and opportunity that recovery brings into our lives. So I hope that there's a message that can get to people where they can find recovery. And then please, when you find it, 
grow in it and pass it on to others because it's not going to be something you can go down to the grocery store and buy like almost everything else in life. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Mooney, thank you so much for being on Addiction in the Family. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope we'll be able to have you back sometime. Thank you, Casey. Thank you so much for the message you're working so hard to get out to family members who can do so much good for themselves and for those people they love and and the society in general. It's good to have a partnership with you and all the people you reach. And that's our interview with Dr. Al Mooney. His book, The Recovery Book, is available wherever books are sold. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey. <laughs>